no matter where we face, we must face the moment of truth, baby. Back another episode of the Stereo Bros podcast. It's your boy Patagonies and Lattes. I'm here with a good friend. Wants to go ahead and introduce yourself. Hey, what's going on, everyone? Uh, my name is Samuel Dean, and I am a financial advisor and founder of Dean Financial Partners. Uh, we're a registered investment advisory firm, and we specialize in financial planning and investing for millennials in tech. Uh, thank you so much for having me today, man. I appreciate it, man. It's, it's, it's about time. <laughs> I know, man. It's It's been long overdue, but it's better late than never, right? <laughs> most definitely. Most definitely, man. It's, it's, it's a pleasure. Definitely. So, as you know, as we've discussed, um, you know, this is a great time in our culture because people are becoming financially savvy and having a lot of conversations around financial literacy. So I wanted to bring you on the podcast and have you, you know, share some of your knowledge and um, potentially, you know, get some business out of this as well. But um, to start with, can you tell the people, you know, what you do and some of the services that you offer in your business? Yeah, sure. So, um, I'm, like I said, I'm a financial advisor based out of New York City. And um, essentially what I do is pretty much work with millennials in the tech industry with financial planning and investment management and pretty much using personal finance as a tool to uh, help our clients live a life of fulfillment, help them do the things that they really want to do, whether that's start a business or retire early or just spend time with their family. Um, If you think about it, everything that you ultimately want in life, the lifestyle that you want to live there's a monetary value attached to each of your goals, whether you, you know, think about it or not. And so, you know, what we do is essentially just help our clients identify what their goals are, um, assign a a monetary value to those things and, you know, kind of see how far away we are from accomplishing those things. And we put a a plan in place to help them get from point A to point B. And in that plan, you know, we cover things from, uh, debt management, investing, um, and um, cash flow planning, employee benefits, estate planning, insurance planning. So we pretty much take care of everything that has to do with our clients' finances. We're like a a, a family CFO, if you will. Nice. Sounds like you guys like a one-stop shop. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what we are. Nice. So that's a very important profession i'm sure you could have been you know any number of things or you you probably didn't want to say you wanted to be a financial planner growing up what was it like in your in your household growing up did you guys grow up like did you grow up in a financially savvy household were you guys like budgeting every week like what was it like uh i wouldn't <laughs> i wouldn't necessarily say it was uh, we were we were having budgeting meetings at dinner or anything like that but <laughs> 
growing up, you know, I'm from a, an immigrant family. You know, we moved here from Guyana in the early 2000s. And, you know, my parents are pretty much hardworking, you know, blue collar individuals. You know, my mom is a registered nurse. My dad is an MTA bus driver. So, I, you know, we didn't necessarily come from a significant amount of money. And I think my parents just worked really hard and, you know, listened to their coworkers and put money in their 401k and, you know, was able to work. They were, they were fortunate to where they had jobs so that they could work overtime. And so I've, you know, witnessed my parents work hours and hours of overtime, you know, while I was at school or at football games and stuff like that. And so, you know, they definitely prioritized working and making sure that they could provide things that I needed, like a good education. And so that that's kind of what I saw. We didn't necessarily have too much conversations around money. I just knew that, you know, if I kind of, if I did good in school, that I would, you know, get something that I may that I that I may have wanted, you know, whether it was like a video game or like a trip to the mall or something like that. And so it wasn't really until like I got a much older, going into college and applying for loans, that we kind of started talking about money and how much, you know, they had to help out with college and, and things like that. So um, I would say it was more so from my parents' actions that I, that I, would, that, that I picked up my money habits, not so much uh, the things that they sat down and taught me. That's uh, dope. That's dope. And I know out there on Long Island, you guys have several malls. So I know that was pretty enticing <laughs> to have the opportunity to go to any number of malls and uh, shop till you drop. Uh, <laughs> so well, well, I, I, I spent so for the most of my well, not most of my childhood, but for the beginning of my childhood, I, I moved to America when I was uh, seven. So from seven to about fourteen, so for seven years, I lived in Brooklyn. So that mall was usually like King's Plaza. We'd go by and just like look around and and see all the stuff that were in there. And then I moved to Long Island uh, when I was fourteen. Ah, uh, so. You never told me that. I've known you for years now. I never knew that you spent time in the the best borough of all, in God's borough. So what neighborhood in Brooklyn? This is like a game changer now. This is like new information live during the interview. Well, this is all, it's all a part of Long Island, whether you guys want to believe it or not. I'm really no, no, not, that's very true. We don't even have to get into that. We don't even have to get no, into no. that. Listen, I'm a realist, right? And I think it was like a global studies class in like high school. The teacher was like, you guys are all Long Islanders. And I said, no, I'm from Brooklyn. And then he pulled out the map. I'm like, no, no, I've seen the map before. But he was like, no, if you think about it, Brooklyn and Queens are part of the peninsula that's considered Long Island. And I'm just like... Absolutely. Absolutely. So since high school, I've known that. And if any time somebody from Long Island like yourself said that, I never felt a way because it's facts. Like, one thing I don't do, I do not argue facts. <laughs> so we get no we get no love though you know you go to the parties they only shout out the you know the, the major boroughs even, mean, even Staten Island gets more love than us man you get strong island but, but the thing is a lot of people don't like y'all for several reasons you guys have you guys all got your own cars you got mad malls a lot of attractive women and you know <laughs> I bet you everybody on your football team had matching equipment like good football good football cleats visors like you, you guys probably must <laughs> on the equipment side, so that's part of what it is too. Um, but if you ask anybody who who grew up in a a tougher background, they would gladly choose you know Baldwin or 
um, Brentwood back when it was good or Dix Hills or Mount Sinai. Like, they would choose that. Or Garden City. Like, they would choose that in a heartbeat. West Hempstead. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. I, I, I hope to think. <laughs> Absolutely. So, where in Brooklyn did you live? I lived in East New York. And I, I part, well, part of when I first moved, I lived with, uh, like, family. So, I was kind of back and forth between East New York and Canarsie. Okay. So... I got a lot of love for the East. A lot of family out there. I spent a lot of time in the East, too. And Canarsie had a ton of pretty ladies. So you're extra good at my book. <laughs> so through all of that, you know, watching your parents do what they did and um, seeing how hard they worked, it sounds like you still went to school with loans, but what was your Eureka moment or your moment where you felt like, I get it, and now I want to kind of devote my time and energy into not only my personal finances, but also into helping others. Because we didn't really talk about whether or not you had any debt in school or anything else like that. Um, and you can talk about that as well, right? So we could break it up. You can talk about whether or not you graduated with any school debt um, and whether or not your debt is still actively out there. And then after that, you can kind of get into what got you to your current mentality towards uh, you know, wealth and debt deletion. Yeah, for sure. So um, I actually do have student loan debt. So I, I went to the university at Albany, went there for four years, and I um, I graduated debt-free. Um, thankfully to my parents, like I said, you know, they worked extremely hard and they were able to um, kind of pay, to pay my way through undergrad. <clears throat> Six Long Island and, kids? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, 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 I'm very blessed for that. You know, I, I realized very early on that many people didn't have that opportunity. So, you know, I, I took advantage of that and I went to school and I did the best I could and put my best foot forward. And then once I graduated, I wasn't exactly sure. And it, it, this kind of all ties in. But once I graduated, I wasn't exactly sure what I wanted to do. And right around the time that I graduated, my mom decided to take this entrepreneurial leap of faith. At the time, she was working two jobs and she quit one job to only work one job and start her other business. So I'm not sure that that's really like a leap of faith. Um, but at that time, you know, I, I started working with my mom and uh, she started a, a healthcare firm and um, I was sort of like the business development arm and I kind of went out and I was responsible for getting our first few contracts. And that experience alone really just showed me what entrepreneurship was like. It showed me what ownership was like. And from there moving forward, I, I kind of decided that this was what I wanted to do. I just didn't know in, in what realm and in what space I wanted to do it in. And so <clears throat> I decided to go to graduate school and pursued my MBA. And <clears throat> this is when I actually accumulated student loans for um, going to uh, my business school. And I went to Hofstra University where their program was somewhere around fifty to $60,000 or so. So that was my first time. After I graduated, it was my first time actually having uh, student loans to pay. And that was um, 50000 a year? 50,000 for the program. So the program was about, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. The program was about two years. Um, and when I graduated, I, it was about 50 to 60. I want to say about 55 or so. Okay. Um, significantly cheaper than like your Whartons and, yeah. and those types of schools. Um, 
And so, yeah, that was the first time I had uh, student loans and I graduated. And while, while I was in business school was when I sort of found um, finance and financial planning and investing. And, and my, my now fiance was also working in that industry. And that was kind of my introduction to um, the financial services industry. And I wasn't really happy where I was in my career. I was working in healthcare, but sort of like on the business side of healthcare at the time. And so once I, you know, kind of, once that piqued my interest, I kind of just went full fledged. I started working in the finance industry. And then shortly after I decided, I decided to launch my own firm. Um, very quickly when I started working in finance, I started to, you know, kind of see what that environment was like, you know, selling products for commissions and not necessarily doing what's uh, at my client's best interest. It's kind of just saying whatever I needed to say to kind of make this sale. Um, yes, it right. was, it, it, it might've been suitable, but it, it may not have been in the, in their best interest. Um, and that's kind of how the, the product pushing industry is. And so I wanted to kind of leave that and, and, and do something that I really wanted to do, serve the people I wanted to serve in the, in the manner that I felt was in their best interest. And so that's, that's what I did. You know, I kind of put in the research and put in the time and, spoke to a lot of different people that were in the industry. And from there, it just kind of took off. I launched my own firm and um, it went from there. No, that, that's a remarkable story. And that's um, like one, you know, definitely appreciate your candor, but also it's, it's good to just hear, you know, folks like yourself that are doing well. Um, just saying that I didn't, Plan this like I didn't grow up saying I wanted to be here, but I had a moment like the universe kind of told me something or something something tweaked or or peaked or fired something up inside of me based on what I was doing, and I pursued it and I figured out I was good at it and I think when people's passions meet their their talent like when those two things combine you know great things happen so that's uh really good to hear I know. For me, seeing your your advertisements or your your work featured in you know any number of magazines and being on airplanes and opening up the airplane magazine and seeing you in there, I was like, wow! And it, it seemed like it happened pretty fast too. But no one knows that even if it seems like it happened quickly, you're you're working around the clock to build your practice and even behind the scenes, you know. To me, there's no such thing as overnight success. It's just maybe overnight celebrity, but the success usually is a is a ramp up. It's no person that I know of who just sort of winning the lotto or getting like a windfall or like an inheritance. No one succeeds overnight at anything. Right. You have to work at it. Right, right. Um, and and I, and I have a few like like friends and family that reach out to me when they like see me in these publications and they're like, Oh my God, good job. Like you're doing amazing. And I'm like, you know, don't, you know, it, it's so easy to kind of be fooled by, you know, being in a publication. Like you don't earn any money. I don't, I can't pay my bills off being featured or anything like that. You know, the, the, the most I can hope for is someone seeing that and saying, Oh my God, like I didn't even know that this type of, of advisor existed. Maybe I should reach out and see what he has to say and see if we'd be a good fit and so on and so forth. I mean, that's right. literally the best that I can, that I can hope for. And so it's kind of just bringing people back to reality and saying like, you know, yes, this, 
this publication saw what I was doing and they wanted to acknowledge it, but that does not necessarily equal to success or uh, like any type of celebrity status or anything like that. You know, it, it's simply uh, a, a manner of marketing, if you will. Absolutely. No, it makes perfect sense. Um, so now we can get into the fun part. Now that folks know who you are, what you do, um, kind of want to get your take on a few things I've asked the other folks who've done these interviews in the financial literacy series. Um, what's your take on relationships and finance? Meaning, um, do you think people should marry if they have debt? Should they seriously consider dating each other if they have a certain amount of debt? Um, should they combine debt? You know, what, what do you think about debt and its impact on relationships? Um, that's actually a good question. I think that when it comes to relationships and debt, um, it's, I wouldn't necessarily say that you shouldn't or you should be with someone based on the amount of debt that they have. What I think is the bigger issue is not being open with your partner about the debt that you have. Mm. I think once, once everything is on the table, it's very easy to kind of come up with a plan on how you can attack this debt together or work as a personal finance team and kind of take care of what you need to take care of. But if there are things like hiding in the closet that you're, un that you're afraid to tell your partner about, I think usually that's where the, the problems start. But once everything is out on the table, you know your partner's credit scores, how much outstanding debt that they have, um, what their assets are like, and, and so on and so forth. I think from there, it just, it just comes down to planning and taking care of it. And usually, there's, you know, it's kind of usually it's in a two-person team. One person is more proactive and more assertive than the other. And if that's the case, then that person can very well you know, kind of take the lead on, on the, on the, on the saving or debt elimination initiative. And right. the other can just kind of support and, and still, still stay in the loop and see what's going on. But if, if it's not your strong suit, if you, you know, you may not be as determined or as persistent, then, you know, there's nothing wrong with kind of letting that person kind of take the lead. But, you know, as long as everything is out on the table and all information is known, I think that's really the, the hardest part. No, that's, that's solid advice. Sounds like uh, honesty is the best policy. <laughs> um, okay, so in terms of mortgaging a home or renting, what are your thoughts on that? Is one better than the other? Is it circumstantial? You know, what do you think? Um, so renting versus buying a home, I, I think that's a pretty big decision. And there are pros and cons to each option, and they definitely depend on you know where you are in life, what you're trying to do, whether you want stability or flexibility. Um, it, it, it really depends on the type of lifestyle that you want to live. So, for example, if you're buying a home, some of the advantages, or if you're interested in buying a home, some of the advantages may be you know you get to build equity and credit. You don't necessarily have a landlord. You know you have more stability and, and tax benefits. Um, the disadvantages could be that it requires substantial down payment. You could lose money if your home declines in value. Um, right. You have maintenance costs that a lot of people don't necessarily factor in. You know, um, 
like let's say your your heater goes and you have to replace something in the home or landscaping and those sorts of things. You know, there's there's a lot of expenses outside of mortgage taxes and insurance. Um, and when it comes to renting, some of the advantages could be something as simple as you're free to you know there's month to month leases or there's one year leases. Right not responsible for maintenance or repairs. You just have to pretty much call your landlord and tell them, you know, this is, this is broken and it needs to be fixed. Um, you don't have any property tax bills or anything like that. But the disadvantage is, is that you're not necessarily building any equity. You don't have any tax benefits. You're kind of like just paying to use the space, if you will. It's not, it's not necessarily yours. And so it really right. depends on, it really depends on what you're looking for in life. Um, it depends on what you're trying to accomplish. It depends on where you are now. Um, it depends on a lot of different things. So I don't, I don't think that one is better than the other. It's, it's definitely circumstantial as most things with personal finance is circumstantial. So. Absolutely. So another one is, you know, leasing a car versus financing a car versus buying a used car. Do you have any thoughts on that? leasing a car versus buying a new car versus buying a used car. Right. So leasing versus financing versus just paying for a car with, you know, all cash and not having a note either way. Oh, well, I mean, and, and again, this, this, this really depends on, on your lifestyle and where you are financially. I mean, if you have the means to it, if you're only looking at finances, the best bet would be to, buy a car in all cash. Therefore, you, you know, you have no, uh, you have no car note or anything like that. You're just pretty much paying the insurance every month. We all know that a car isn't necessarily an investment. It doesn't appreciate in value like a home can, unless, you know, you have like a, a an old school classic car and you take right. very, very well, and, and you take very, a lot of care of it. 99% of the time, as soon as you drive that car off the lot, it's going to decrease in value. And so if you're only looking at long-term costs, I would say that financing, I mean, again, buying a car in cash is obviously the best bet. Most people in America don't necessarily have the cash flow to do so. And I would say that the next best bet would be financing a car. But again, it, it all depends on your lifestyle, the things that you want. So Right. Leasing a car, leasing a, the cost to lease a car is much lower than it is to buy a car. You know, there's little to no down payment required. You don't have right. to pay any upfront. You don't have to pay any upfront sales tax. And when you're done, you can just return the vehicle. And if you need a, another one for the next three years, you, you kind of do the same thing. So there's no like repair expenses when you're leasing a vehicle or anything like that. You know, you're just similar to renting an apartment. You're just paying to use use the vehicle. Um, when you finance a car, you know, you're taking out a loan to pay for it um, up front. And then once that loan is paid, you then own the car. I think if you're in a situation like that, and I would suggest you kind of drive that car into the ground before purchasing a new car. Um, but a, a good thing to note is that if, if that is the option that you're going to choose, it's probably it's probably better to to at least. Um, it's probably better to at least like drive that vehicle. And once you see that your, your expenses are kind of rising as it comes to like repair expenses and so forth, if that starts to become cumbersome and become more than what it would cost to just purchase a new car, then at that point it would make sense to 
kind of buy a new car or lease a new car or something of, of the nature. So again, it, it really depends on, on where you are, what you're looking for. There's no real right or wrong answer to, to, to this question. Absolutely. It, it, that's the one thing that I think people go back and forth on. I think, you know, sometimes if you calculate the, the cost of a car, it may be, you know, suppose the, the car costs, you know, $5,000, but that car at that price point may have the types of issues that are going to cost you several thousand dollars, like a transmission exactly. engine, as opposed to, you know, leasing something um, with like a six year, 72,000 mile warranty or something like that, or right. buying used, but then still paying yourself or saving half of what it would cost for a car note so that you have like a little car maintenance fund or something like that. I think, you know, based on the situation, you got to be comfortable with either with either choice you make. But I always ask people that just because I'm always curious to hear how people think. And a lot of people I talk to say that they don't want any kind of debt. But then there's others that will say they treat it as a line item. And if they can use it as part of their business and just expense it, they'll do that as well. So like you said, it's it's, it's very uh, circumstantial. Yeah, um, it's definitely circumstantial. So what are some of the challenges that you find in your business and dealing with customers? Do you feel like certain customers are more risk averse or not as comfortable sharing their finances for any, for any particular reasons? Are there any other things that you um, find as like common challenges when engaging a new customer? Um, I think, at least for me right now, one of the challenges that I face or is realizing that a, a huge, huge, huge portion of my job is not necessarily picking the right investments or creating the perfect financial plan, but it's really understanding what what my clients' values are, what their goals are, what they're trying to achieve, um, really understanding where they come from because that all ties into who they are today and what their money habits are. And managing their behavior, you know, I mean, I, I think a, a part of the reason why people hire financial advisors is because they're looking for something along the lines of an accountability partner. I'm working with this person to make sure that, you know, my goals are accomplished and I achieve things that I'm setting out to achieve. And so once you kind of, when, once you have those things, it kind of holds you to a higher standard. You don't want to be, you don't want to pay money to not do what this person is recommending you to do. And that, that's kind of a waste of time. Um, right. But you know, there, there are things that, you know, people know that they should be doing that they're not doing and they're waiting to be told to do it or, you know, they're doing things they know they shouldn't be doing because it's out of habit. And I think that's where a value of, of having a financial advisor um, kind of uh, plays. So for me, I would say behavior management and, and behavior modification is something that I didn't necessarily expect coming into the industry. I'm, I'm very, I'm, I'm more of a technical nerd. So I placed a lot of emphasis on knowing what I need to know to make sure at least the, the fundamentals are there. But, you know, there's so many other things like you know, there's so many things outside of the technical aspect of financial planning, like emotions that, that play, if not a greater role, you know, the, the, the same role that the technical aspect does. And so I would say that's been uh, sort of a challenge. Are there any 
I guess like common pitfalls that you find people making that you can kind of give general advice on. I guess what I'm getting at is, you know, as we wrap up, um, are there any general tips that you can give folks out there or common things that they can kind of avoid at a high level just to one, avoid ruining their finances? Um, actually, I almost forgot to ask you about credit cards. Um, that's another thing that, you know, people seem to differ on a lot. Personally, I don't use credit cards anymore. Um, what are your thoughts on credit cards? Good, bad, ugly? Um, so it, if, 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 obviously if you can be responsible, credit cards are amazing because of the perks that they come with. But I know someone that regardless of the perks that it comes with, they're not using a credit card. You know, and I know someone who only uses a credit card for all of their purchases because they travel often. And so they pay their bill every single month in full so that they never have to pay any interest. Sometimes they even pay their bill twice a month just to make sure they never occur any, I mean, um, occur any interest. And so uh, it really, again, this is something, it depends on your habit. So for me, for example, I travel often. I like having Sky Miles. I pay my bill every month in full when I get it. If I'm going to make a huge purchase, I'm going to make sure that I can pay it off in at least three months. But frankly speaking, most of America isn't like that. And so that's why you kind of have a negative stigma around credit cards because, you know, if you kind of look at the people who, who have credit cards and who can access credit cards, um, nine times out of ten, they're going to, you know, kind of build a balance, go over their limit, do things that aren't necessarily uh, match up with building generational wealth. And so uh, it, 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 it depends on who you are and, and what you're trying to do. So. That's solid. Um, you know, Sky Miles, I tried to, uh, true story, I tried to, you know, get mad Sky Miles with a credit card before. Um <laughs> Shout out to American Airlines. And at the end of the year, they were like, hey, you have like 5,000 miles. You can either get a coaster or a bunch of a bunch <laughs> of magazines, basically. So I said the magazines. And then for like a year, I got nonstop magazines. So after that, I was over the whole experience because it, they were sending me magazines so fast that I couldn't even read them. So I was getting yeah. five magazines a month. And at the end of the year, I had like, Stacks and stacks of magazines sitting in my house. So, so funny story. I'm actually going to Jamaica in a few weeks because I traveled with a particular agency um, in April, and they had this promotional deal that if you, you know, if you took out this card and made one purchase of any amount, that you can get sixty thousand miles, which which equaled, which basically was the same as two round trip tickets to the Caribbean. Um. And wow. so, yeah, so I, I, I took the card out and you had to pay the annual fee. So the annual fee is $95 and then you can make a purchase on anything. So I pretty much, I, I might've bought like a pack of gum from the gas station. So I, I essentially got a hundred dollar trip, a um, hundred dollar, two round trip tickets for a hundred dollars um, to Jamaica for this wedding. Nice. Yeah. Um, but what they're, what the thing is that what they're banking on is that most people are going to say, okay, I'm going to get the card and then. I'm going to get my miles. I'm going to, you know, pay the $95 or whatever. And I am going to cancel the card. Most people don't end up canceling the card. And so Amer this, this, this airline is willing to take that bet that 
once you get the card and you get your miles, you're probably going to keep the card. Maybe months, even years from then, you're probably going to end up using the card and it's going to become a card that's in your wallet that you're going to continue using. So with these type of deals, you kind of have to be like very intentional. Like this is exactly what I'm using this for. I'm going to get this card, use these miles, and either cut up the card and throw it away or close the close the credit card line or something of the sort. But nine times out of 10, that doesn't necessarily happen. So, so, but for me, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be, I'm going to enjoy my trip to Jamaica, you know, and, and <laughs> be very intentional, be very intentional about how we handle that credit card. Mm, no, that's solid advice. But if you, if you close the account too quickly, won't that have a negative impact on your score? Temporarily, it will. Temporarily, it will have a, an impact on your score. And that's what some people are, you know, kind of wary of. And I, I don't make a big deal. I, me personally, I don't make a big deal over things like that. If Obviously, if this is like, like a client of mine, I wouldn't advise even taking out the card in the first place. But yeah. I know myself, you know, I know, you know, I know who I am. I know what my intentions are. I trust myself. And so that's why I did it. Uh, definitely. That's a, that's a good anecdote and, you know, solid advice as well. But, uh, whatever, you know, three pieces of advice that you'd give to the uh, general listener on how they can beef up their finances and kind of get out of whatever financial troubles they may be in, aside from hiring you, of course, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, three pieces of advice. Um, the first thing I would say is to Stop paying attention to what other people are doing around you. And I, I think that there's a lot of people that kind of find themselves going certain places, doing certain things just because they, you know, they feel like they should because the people around them are doing it. You know, we talk about social media, you know, kind of being the crux of career pressure all the time. And I think that is real and I agree wholeheartedly. So, you know, my number one advice is to just live your life for you. Um, if you have specific goals that you're working towards, make, make a plan and save for those goals and not worry about what other people are doing with their money. And I, I think if we can kind of do that, it'll be so much easier to stick to your budget, which is going to be my, my next point. And make a financial plan. I'm not saying you have to go and hire a financial planner. Your situation may not be as comp- like that complex to where you need to. You may not be as busy to where you can't. Google a few things and put a few things together and figure it out on your own, but make sure you have a plan. You know, if you have student loans and you want to be debt free, you can't just say, you can't just pay your student loans month to month and just hope to be debt free. You kind of have to know, okay, I'm going to be paying this amount every month. When am I going to be debt free by, you know? So having a plan, knowing when you're going to be where you, knowing as far as time frame when you want to be, um, when, when you want to achieve these goals by and putting a plan in place, I think is, is, is the best bet. It's, it's the only way that you can know that your goal is going to be, to be achieved. You know, when it's going to be achieved by, you know, how much it's going to cost to achieve this goal. And so if you don't have a plan, you don't really know what's, what's going on. So those, that, that would be my, my best advice. Nice. Nice. Where can the folks find you? Your your social media handles, your website, give the people that information. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so my website is deansfinancial.com. That's D E A N E financial.com. 
And all of my social media handles, uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, is Samuel S. Dean. And that's my first name, my middle initial, and my last name. Perfecto. Well, it's been a pleasure, you know, talking to you about something that is uh, near and dear to a lot of people's hearts, uh, especially in our community, as more folks become woke to the fact that generational wealth is, you know, so key to us as a people and it's also pretty key to our survival as a community. So I appreciate you taking time out to uh, chop it up with us. I know you're busy doing your HuffPo Forbes American <laughs> Airlines appearances. So definitely appreciate you taking the time out to uh, chop it up, man. Much appreciated. Thank you, man. I, I really appreciate you for inviting me, brother. I, I appreciate it so much. All right, man. <laughs>